Praise the Lord. Ryan, you're putting us to sleep over there. That was pretty, but you're putting us to sleep. <laughs> We're going to start this morning with two opening, or this, whenever this is. <laughs> and I thought I was over my jet lag. Uh, we're going to start with two openings of scripture, Proverbs chapter 10 and Genesis chapter two. Uh, before we, uh, my family left on a trip a couple of weeks ago, we were teaching on subjects of prosperity. We want to pick up with, uh, some of the things that, uh, we were talking about then and go a little bit further. Um, Proverbs chapter 10 verse 22 is one of the scriptures that we used in the beginning as kind of a golden text for, um, for this series. And it says this, Proverbs 10, 22, the blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. Now, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say the abundance of resources makes you rich. See, most of the time, we in our Western mentality, mindset, we think of rich as being the accumulation of things. But notice the Bible says, makes a connection, a specific connection between an unseen blessing, a spiritual blessing, and the result of wealth. Now, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 tells us the story of creation. Uh, Actually, I want to start in Genesis chapter 1. I'm getting ahead of myself. Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 tell us the story of of, uh, creation. Gives us a little bit more detail in uh, one chapter over another. But notice it says, we'll start reading in... uh, well, let's just start reading in Genesis one twenty six, And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. So chapter one is talking about the summary of creation. Chapter two tells us about when Eve was created out of Adam's side and and so forth but chapter one is kind of the summary and chapter two is the detail and god blessed them and god blessed them and god blessed them and god blessed them why would god have to bless the only human beings that were that were existence in existence on the earth now you know that god created the world for mankind Psalm 89 verse 11 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Psalm 50 says, The beasts of the forest are his, and the cattle on a thousand hills belong to him. Haggai chapter 2 and verse 8 says, The silver and gold belongs to the Lord. Who did he make this stuff for? God did not have a plan to make this for it to be in the devil's hands. Now he knew this was going to happen. He knew man was going to fall. But his intent, his purpose, was for man to have dominion over the works of his hands. That means over the cattle of the uh, the the thousand hills were under Adam's dominion. That means the silver and gold was under Adam's dominion. That means the earth and the fullness thereof was under Adam's dominion. Why did God need to bless them? It ended enough of a blessing to have been created and placed in the earth that was without, well, with seemingly at least unlimited resources. We know that the resources of the earth are limited. They are finite. But as far as two people and the ability for two people to use them, that would be a pretty much uh, an unlimited resource, if you know what I mean, if you understand what I'm saying. Why would he need to bless them? Because, folks, 
they were in a position where they were created and had access to the unlimited resources of the earth or the, the nearly unlimited resources of the earth, all the resources of the earth. But it's the blessing of God that makes you rich. It's not being set in the middle of a pile of money that makes you rich. It's the blessing of the Lord that makes you rich. Now, please keep that in mind because we're going to see it over and over again, spoken in a number of different ways. So it said, God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree in which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed to you. It shall be for meat. Please notice again, verse 29. He says, the earth is yours for food. The herbs of the field are yours to eat. The fruit of the trees are yours to eat. Everything that God created was theirs, was available to them, was created for their provision. God made provision for man before he ever created him. And God instructs them. God tells the man, everything that's here is for you. Notice everything that was there was not for the devil. Notice God didn't create the earth and the fullness thereof for the devil to get his hands on. He did get his hands on it, but that was not God's plan. God said, my plan... My intent is for you to have dominion over the works of my hand, for you to have access, unlimited access to the resources of the earth. And to every beast of the earth, verse 30, to every fowl of the air and to everything that creeps upon the earth wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Notice the condition that God considers to be very good. Man with the resources of the earth at his disposal. Operating under the blessing of the Lord with the resources of the earth under his disposal, or at his disposal. Under his dominion. That's what God considers to be very good. Now, I don't know what you consider to be very good. And I certainly know the devil doesn't consider that to be very good. But that's what God considers to be very good. Folks, if we could just wrap our heads around that. That would solve most of the financial problems we have. If we could just wrap our heads around the fact that God considers it to be very good for there to be an abundance of resources for everybody that belongs to him. I want you to notice I love the way John Osteen used to say it. God made more trees than Adam could sit under the shade of. He made more grass than he could ever walk barefoot through. He made more food than he could ever eat. And God put man in the middle of it. God is not El Chipo or a stingy God. He made more than Adam could ever use. And God said that was very good. Chapter 2, verse 7. It said, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This is the the specific, the details of chapter 1's summary of creation. Breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became four heads, came into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, that is which encompasses the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. I want you to notice that God told Moses where the gold was. 
Now, this is not a land that Moses is in at the time. Why would God want Moses to know where the gold is? Well, if that doesn't show a principle that God will reveal to you where the resources are that you could and should have dominion over, I don't know what is. So many people seem to have the idea that God's trying to hold back. God's trying to hide things from people. But everything about God is revelation. And the gold of that land is good. God considers gold to be good. The gold of that land is good. There is bdellium and onyx stone, and the name of the second river is Gihon, the same uh, as is it that compasses the whole land of Ethiopia. The name of the third river is Hittical. That is it which goes toward the east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Every tree of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. It talks about God making Eve, bringing Eve forth. And, uh, well, we won't read that part. That's not relevant to our discussion tonight. My point is very simply this. The Bible says in two different accounts, first summarizing, secondly in detail, that God made everything that was good for man to eat and gave him access to it. Man had access to all the earth's resources prior to the fall. Do you see that? Now, what's your picture of this at this point in time? Can I suggest what most of us see? And I don't know how accurate we are when we imagine this, but we see two people in, a, in, a, in a, a, an abundant place, abundance of resources, no lack for anything, weather's perfect. They've got the perfect marriage. They've got the perfect environment. They've got the perfect everything. And all they have to do is walk from tree to tree and eat whatever they want whenever they want it. Right? Isn't that pretty much how we see it? Did you notice that it says about the garden, God put man, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. You know what the word dress means? It means to work. God put Adam in the middle of the garden and said, work the garden and and keep it. Keep it means to protect it or guard it. He told him to work the garden. What work does Adam have to do? Now, did God say, if you don't work it, the garden's going to go to pot? There's no decay. There's no curse. There's no sin. There's nothing to make anything atrophy or go to pot, so to speak. Everything God created, he created to reproduce itself. He created it to live and he created it to sustain itself. Before the fall, there is no death. There is nothing that can hurt. There's nothing that can go downhill in any form whatsoever. So what's Adam working for? Folks, I want you to understand, God's plan from the beginning, even before the fall, was for man to work. Now, there's an interesting thing about working. You go to um, college graduations, ceremonies, and all the graduation speakers will say, find what you love to do and make a living out of it. 
That's the worst advice you can give anybody. Because what most of us love to do is watch TV. Or some of us may, may have a, a higher goal than that. Maybe we would love to be a conductor of an orchestra. There's not many of those in need. There's not many of those that, that uh, many of those positions available. What are we supposed to do? The stupidest idea is to find something you love and do it. The best idea is to find what you're good at and learn to love it. The reality is you love the things you work at. And you might be thinking, well, I hate my job. That's not true in my case because I hate my job. If you hate your job, you're cursing your own ground. Because a part of the, the blessing of the Lord is to work the ground that he gave you. That means to do the work in such a way that is needful and necessary so that you develop a love or an appreciation for it. Why? Because it's the means whereby God is going to provide for you. So I want you to see something. I want you to see that Adam worked before the fall. Now, I know some people have a hard time with that, the concept of work. But work seems to be of God. God told Adam to work. So you know what happens. Adam and Eve are tempted. Eve is tempted and Adam goes along with it without the temptation. He's got his eyes wide open and they both fall. Skip down with me in verse uh, or chapter 3. And I want you to see what the, um, what the curse is. Uh, we won't get into the part where everybody's blaming everybody. Let's start reading verse 17. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, which has eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. Notice he says, Here's the result of having disobeyed what I told you to do. Cursed is the ground for your sake. Cursed is the ground for your sake. Now what does that mean? Does that mean the ground is not going to produce food anymore? Well, that's not the case. What does it mean? Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow, labor, toil, struggle, shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. Adam's probably thinking, what's a thorn? What's a thistle? He didn't know anything about thorns and thistles. God didn't create the earth to to, to produce thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles are a result of the curse right he's now told him that the work apparently the same kind of work that he was doing before is going to be laborious now where it wasn't earlier before the fall there's going to be labor there's going to be toil there's going to be a struggle and the ground is going to produce not just good it's going to produce thorns and thistles then notice it says in verse 19, In the sweat of thy face that shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. What's bread? I thought Adam was eating of the trees. Is there a bread tree in Eden? What is bread? Folks, I want you to realize something. This doesn't tell us the story from Adam's perspective. It tells us from Moses' perspective. Moses is the one that's getting this from the Lord and recording it for us. This is from Moses' perspective. Now, Moses knows what bread is. 
Moses knows that when he relates this to the people and the people read it from his day forward, even to our day, he knows that we're going to know what bread is. There's one Jewish rabbi who says, bread, eating bread is not a curse. Bread is wonderful. But the point is not that bread is going to be their food. The point is you're going to have to plan for food from now on. You're going to have to make strategies to obtain food. Somebody's going to have to grow the grain. Somebody's going to have to crush the grain. Somebody's going to have to turn it into flour. Somebody's going to have to bake the flour. Somebody's going to have to go to, some, to, to a, a number of steps, and I don't even know how many steps there are to get from seed to, to bread. But somebody's going to have to plan ahead. In other words, the work and the sweat of your face is going to have to be, at least in part, strategizing. Planning for your food. And I would submit to you folks that there's not too many people that are planting the seed all the way through and taking all the steps until baking bread and eating it themselves. It also indicates, and the Jews are real big on this point, it also indicates to them that it's going to take interaction and specialization to make the earth produce for you in the manner in which God wants it to. Now, if God did not want man to be able to eat, God could have cursed the ground and said, that's it, no more food for you. You've got six days till you die. God is not saying, I don't want the earth to produce for you. He's saying the system has changed. He's saying in order for the earth to produce for you, remember what my idea of very good was, you having basically unlimited resources of the earth at your disposal but now in order for the earth to produce for you in abundance it's going to take some planning it's going to take some working together it's going to take a little bit different effort different kind of effort on your part verse 15 again or verse 19 i'm sorry in the sweat of thy face shall thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground for out of it was thou taken for dust thou art and unto dust thou shalt return now, folks, if you look at the resources of the earth, if, if wealth is just about resources, if being rich is just about having money, let me use those terms because I know a lot of times people freak out about the word rich. The Bible says Jesus was made poor for your sake to, so that you might be made rich. Now, that's King James translators who may be the, the last people on the face of the earth of their day and time that would have believed or accepted that God wanted anybody to be rich. But the word is rich and they were honest in the way that they translate. So the Bible says Jesus paid a price for you to be rich. Now, whatever rich means to you, rich is a relative term. Rich does not mean X number of dollars. I'm rich compared to some people and poor compared to others. Well, rich and poor relative terms. Rich compared to other, the, the people that I'm rich in comparison to doesn't mean they don't have any money. It just means that I have greater resources and wealth than they do. But the people that I'm poor in comparison to, it doesn't mean that I don't have anything either. It just means they've got a whole lot more. So rich and poor are relative terms. So rich can mean anything to you you want it to mean. If God was trying to put a cap on the word, he wouldn't have used the word rich. The reality is rich can mean as much to you as you're willing to believe for. If the principle of the Bible is true, and I believe it is, God didn't say to Adam and Eve, 
Now, the whole earth is producing food, but you, only this little square of, of ground right here is yours. He gave him dominion over all the works of his hands. Well, that's the whole earth, isn't it? Didn't God create the whole earth? Or did he just create one little patch and the rest of it evolved? No, he created the earth. So if rich is just an amount, the, the amount of resources, then wouldn't the wealthiest nations of the world be the ones that have the greatest resources in their territories? Wouldn't that be the case? But if you look at the earth, some of, as a matter of fact, the wealthiest continent on the face of the earth in terms of resources and natural resources, you know which one it is? Africa. Why is Africa not made up of a collection of the, the wealthiest nations on the face of the earth? Hmm? I mean, it seems like that's the way it ought to work, doesn't it? I mean, people that are, that are uh, born in countries that have a, an abundance of natural resources, shouldn't they look at the, their resources and say, boy, I sure am lucky I was born here in this wealthy nation? Russia is another nation that's got a, uh, an incredible amount of natural resources. They're certainly not a wealthy nation. What is it that makes the difference? You know, they've done studies. They've written books. You can get, fill up a library full of books that they've, uh, that they've done. One is um, uh, The Wealth and the Poverty of Nations. And there are other similar titles along those lines. The studies that they've done, you know what they found is the common denominator between rich nations? They found that the thing that makes nations rich is the spiritual component or characteristic of those people. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. Israel is maybe the prime example. You look at the nation of Israel, and when it comes to natural resources, they pale in comparison to many of the countries around them. Yet they're a wealthy nation. Why? Because of their spiritual mindset. Now, does that jive with the rest of the scripture? Well, let's see. Let's look at some scriptures. Why don't you turn with me over to, to um, Mark chapter 6 to begin with. I'm sorry, it's Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is talking about things and he's talking about possessions. He talks about the behold the fowls of the air. They don't sow, neither do they reap, yet God feeds them and so forth. Well, maybe I ought to read this. Let's do. Let's start reading. Um, let's start in verse 19. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth where moth and rust dust corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust dust corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, let me, let me stop here long enough. Maybe this would be a good time to interject another 
scripture that we were going to look at a little bit later over in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 tells the story of the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus. The rich young ruler. He's a young man and he's already rich. He's a young man and he's already rich. Now there's a discrepancy about what he's ruling over. There are some commentators that say that, that the, being a ruler just means he's got many servants and, and a, a man of, of wealth and therefore a man of influence and, and so forth. Others say that he's a rich young ruler, meaning a ruler of the synagogue. There's discrepancy on that or argument about that because young men would not be rulers of the synagogues. So whatever he's ruler of, the Bible says that he's a ruler. He's a man of influence. He's a man of authority. So here he is, he's a rich young ruler, and his heart is after the things of God. He's interested in the things of God. He comes to Jesus and says, Master, good master, rabbi, what must I do to be saved? Well, now, folks, I've never had anybody come running up to me and say, Pastor Mike, Pastor Mike, tell me what can I do to be saved? That's just never happened to me. So you would think that somebody that does that to Jesus would be on the right track, wouldn't you? I mean, it says he comes running up to Jesus. You wouldn't think that a, a man of influence, a wealthy man and a man of influence would operate that way. You would expect him to operate with a little bit more dignity, maybe send a servant, maybe send for a private meeting for, with Jesus. But that's not what this guy does. This guy comes running up to Jesus, slides to a screeching halt, and says, good master, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, well, you know what the commandments say. Jesus is not there to preach salvation. Jesus, that was not his ministry. Jesus says, you know what the Old Testament says. And then he, he speaks of several of the commandments. Now, the commandments that he, speak to, that he speaks to, the ones that he quotes, are man's interaction with other people. And this guy answers and says, all these I've kept from my youth up, which is part of the reason why he's rich. He deals wisely with other people. In other words, he has a strategy for business and for his future, which is what God was telling Adam in the Garden of Eden. You're going to have to make a plan. You're going to have to come up with an idea. Then Jesus looks at him and says he loves him. His heart's right. He's the doer of the word, at least when it comes to interacting with other people. And he's reaped the benefits of it. And Jesus said, there's one thing that you're missing, one thing you lack, only one thing do you lack. Now, folks, I would, I've said this thousands of times, but I, I can't come to this scripture without thinking along these terms. If Jesus appeared to you or me or anybody else and said, there's only one thing wrong, I'm going to do a dance. Just one? Praise God. I'm counting a lot different than you are, apparently. I'm glad to hear this. He said, there's one thing that you like. Well, what is the one thing that he lacks? He said, sell what you have and give to the poor that, that, that thou mayest have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now back to Matthew chapter 6. Notice it says, verse 20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust does corrupt and where thieves do not break through or steal. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What is the man's problem? His heart, even though he has a desire for the things of God, even though he has a desire to be a doer of the commandments, 
He's got a desire for salvation. He's got a yearning on the inside. He's not yielding to it the way that he should. He's not letting it affect his uh, attitude and the use of his wealth. So Jesus is telling him there's only one way you can have treasure in heaven. There's only one way you can have a heart for spiritual things. And that is to give your money to help other people. In other words, use your money for something other than yourself. This guy is rich because he's obeyed the commandments and interacting with other people to his own benefit. But that's where he stopped. He's got treasure on the earth because he's been a doer of the word. I think this is where a lot of the Jewish nation is today. A lot of the Jews are wealthy to them, wealthy toward themselves and for themselves because they've acted on what the Bible said to do. Whether they, they're confessing the word like we know of his faith, they're being doers of the word that they know, and that's faith. Now, is there, is there more to it? Sure. Could they learn a lot and add, to, add Jesus to their, to their belief system? Absolutely, and should. And we should pray for them that they will. But they are acting on what they're doing, on what they know. Their success comes from their action because the Bible says the doer of the word is blessed in his deed. They're acting on the word, folks. They may not have a heart toward God and other things. I was talking to somebody just before the service, and we were talking about how so many of the Jews are are liberal in their uh, points of view and their attitudes that are contrary to the word where gay marriage and, and things like that are concerned. Just because they're operating in an area of success by acting on the word concerning finances doesn't mean the rest of everything that they do or say or believe is right. But what they're doing is working in the area that they're doing it. So Jesus has got to get this rich young ruler acting on something with his finances, with his wealth, so that he gets his heart more in spiritual things and more in heavenly things than they are in natural things. Remember, remember, Paul told Timothy, encouraged Timothy in uh, one of the letters he wrote right at the end of Paul's life. He said, uh, charge those that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches. Nor trust in uncertain riches. That's the, the warning that God gave uh, ch- the children of Israel through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says, when you prosper and when you have your goodly houses and your gold and your silver multiplies and your flocks and your herd are multiplying don't let your heart get lifted up and you turn away from god don't forget that it was god that gave you the power to get wealth that's a warning that's reiterated in the bible over and over and over again it seems that when we begin to prosper it's easy for our minds to be pulled away or literally our hearts to be pulled away toward the natural things and the material things that we're being blessed with That's what we have to guard against. Proverbs says the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. Well, what's a fool? A fool is the one that forgets that it was God that gave him the power to get wealth. I've had people say before, well, Pastor Mike, I don't want any of this world's good because the Bible says the prosperity of fools will destroy them. Well, don't be a fool. It's a choice. So Jesus is trying to get the rich young ruler to have his heart in the right place. And there's only one way for that, and that is to give. Rich young ruler hears this and goes away sad, for he had great possessions. Brother Hagin used to say his possessions had him. I think he's right. 
Jesus loved him while he was rich. He's trying to get him to do the right thing. Now, folks, you know as well as I do that the Bible says, Give and it will be given unto you. Good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over shall men give unto your bosom. If this guy does what Jesus says, he's going to get a return. Jesus doesn't try to talk him into it. Jesus doesn't try to preach to him a prosperity message to influence him or give him an incentive to act on the word. He lets him walk away. So what's the principle that the Bible is telling us even even this far in our reading? It's telling us that the blessing of the Lord needs to have a spiritual component. You can have the world's wealth, the world's riches without a spiritual component but the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. The rich young ruler was filled with sorrow because he wouldn't yield to the spiritual aspect that Jesus was trying to get him to operate in. Back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 22. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? That's very simply saying you can't be double-minded. Notice he's talking about having your treasure in heaven. He's talking about don't be double-minded. He goes further and says in verse 24, no man can serve two masters. You can't pretend to be interested in the things of God and just after the money. Doesn't work. No man can serve two masters for either he'll hate the one and love the other or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is a term that refers to money or material possessions. He's saying it's going to be either or. Somebody said this once, and I I like the way that they said it. You don't love the things that you use, and you don't use the things that you love. If you love God, you won't try to use him for your own benefit. If you love money, you won't use it for God. But if you love God, you'll use money. Verse 25, therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body. What you shall put on is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment. Behold the fowls of the air, they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit to his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? Please notice verse 32. For after all these things... Do the Gentiles seek? Now, Gentile represents the heathen. It represents those who are not interested in the things of God. Notice he said, here's the way the world operates. The world's trying to get stuff. Don't be like the world trying to get stuff. For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought of the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. 
Please notice Jesus said the way to get things God's way is to put your heart into things of God. Love God and be a doer of the word and the things will come. In other words, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he has no sorrow to it. The Gentiles are looking for stuff. Don't look for stuff. Put spiritual things first. And folks, that's what study after study after study has found that the cultures of the nations of the earth that have a spiritual component to them are the wealthiest nations on the face of the earth. Not the ones with the greatest natural resources. It's a spiritual component. Let's look at a couple more. Turn with me over to uh, 3 John chapter, 3 John verse 2. Only one chapter in 3 John. Somebody would say, well, this is written to a man named Gaius. Doesn't belong to everybody. But if the Holy Ghost inspired John to write this and God is no respecter of persons, then in whatever John would be inspired by the Holy Ghost to want for Gaius, God would want for everybody, wouldn't he? 3 John chapter 1 verse 2. 3 John verse 2. It was only one chapter. Beloved. I wish above all things, the word wish is the word pray. Now, again, if this is inspired by the Holy Ghost, here's what the Holy Ghost is desiring for his people. I wish or pray above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospers. Even as thy soul prospers. What's John saying? What's John inspired by the Holy Ghost to say? He's saying as you put spiritual things first, as you grow in spiritual truth and spiritual knowledge, I pray that the prosperity and the health that, that is revealed in the word of God through the finished work of Jesus on the cross would be realized in your life. But notice an even as. Notice a conditional thing. The blessing of the Lord makes rich. And he adds no sorrow to it. The blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. Let's look at another one real quick. Look with me to... Um, look with me to Isaiah chapter 1. Here's a little different one. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. God speaks to the prophet and says, Come now, God speaking first person, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. What is God talking about? He's talking about forgiveness of sins. What does forgiveness of sins mean uh, to us? The day of the new covenant. It means redemption. It means salvation. It means accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And notice what he says in verse 19 in the context of redemption. If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Willing and obedient regarding what? Regarding the redemptive work of Jesus. Notice he didn't say if you get saved. He said if you be willing and obedient. In other words, if you put spiritual things first, if you submit yourself to the word, if you become a doer of the word, then you'll eat the good of the land. Now, what do you think the good of the land is? Well, didn't we just read in Genesis chapter 2? What God's idea, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, what God's idea of very good was concerning man and material possessions. The good of the land in Adam and Eve's case 
was basically unlimited resources of the earth. Well, do you think God has changed his idea when he's speaking of the good of the land here in Isaiah chapter 1? Not at all. Over and over and over again, folks, it talks about God's plan being to prosper and provide for his people as they put spiritual things first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Let me tell you a story. 1980, I went to Bible school. A lot of people don't think you can get to Bible school in Tulsa, Oklahoma, from Birmingham, Alabama, but, it, but you can. Went to Bible school. Uh, I was working uh, a variety of jobs, had been working a variety of jobs because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I'd finished school. I've been accepted to law school, and the thought of going to three more years of school just ate me up. And so uh, I'm, I'm unsure. Um, it's the spring of the year, spring of 1980, and I'm unsure what I'm going to do. And through a series of events, I wound up becoming acquainted with uh, Raymond Bible Training Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Brother Hagen's School. And so I had um, put together some money, saved up some money, working some of the jobs I was uh, I had been living at school for a while and then came back and uh, for a couple of months was living there at home with my mom and so didn't have a lot of expenses and so I was saving a little bit of money wasn't making much but I was saving what I could and um, then there was a family member that was in trouble and so I wound up loaning them I thought I was loaning it to them wound up giving it to them whatever I had so when the Lord told me to go to Ramah I didn't have any money and um so there was a supernatural event that took place. There was somebody that, that became aware, uh, kind of out of the blue. I didn't tell anybody, um, but they became aware of the situation. And so God put it on their heart to pay for me to get from, to move from Birmingham to, to Tulsa. Well, I got to Tulsa and didn't have any money. Had arranged for a place to live, living in, uh, moved into student housing across the street from the school. And, uh, paying $200 a month for an apartment. I was late getting there, so it wasn't like I had any chance to get a roommate or anything. I had an apartment by myself. It was $200 a month. I, I wish I could get back to those kind of rents. The problem was I wasn't making any money. Uh, I started looking for jobs. The Lord put on my heart, spoke to me very specifically about treating heating school. Brother Hagen was teaching those classes in the afternoon, every afternoon, to treat heating school as part of my class. So I couldn't work in the afternoons. had to start working at night. So the only job I could find was uh, with Everclean Janitorial Service. I'm 24 years old, working from 11 o'clock at night to 7 o'clock in the morning, rushing home, going to school at 8 o'clock, um, staying in school till noon, try, usually catching an out from one from 12.30 to, to 1.30 or something like that, getting over to healing school at 2.15, however long healing school went, sometimes till 5 and 5.30 in the evening. Uh, and then I was also working a second job uh, with uh, the city. There was a, uh, a recreational department. Uh, one of the guys going to school worked with the rec department, had for the last couple of years. And so um, through a series of events, I became acquainted with him. So I was going to referee uh, city league football games. And, and it was great. It wasn't high school football or anything like that. It was just rec leagues and and that type of thing, but, but I could make some huge money. 
Now, my Everclean job, I don't know if any of you guys remember this far back, but in 1980, minimum wage was $3.10. Now, I've got a car that's got a 350 cubic inch engine that's costing me about a day's wage to get downtown to where this building is, this office building that, that they had a contract with. So I'm, I'm making hardly anything. But my opportunity to make money was with the, the rec leagues because I could make uh, $20 a game uh, refereeing these, these things for about an hour and a half. The game would go no longer than an hour and a half. And they had them stacked up where you could do three games a night. The problem was we had the wettest winter on record. And so these games would be rained out day after day after day after day. So I just, I wasn't making any money at all. And, uh, but just happy as can be, going to school, learning things about God. Well, the way they had it set up, the, the tuition was uh, uh, set out in monthly payments. And the, the money that got me from Birmingham to Tulsa paid the first month's tuition, the first deposit on the tuition. But in, uh, so I got there in September. By October the 1st, I owed another $200 for tuition. So now $200 for rent. I'm not eating anything, so that's not costing me any money. Um, $200 for, for tuition. And I missed that first tuition payment, that first thing, October the 2nd, whatever the, the time was, first day after it was due. They called a list of names and said they wanted to meet us after class. And we all looked at each other. We knew exactly what it was. Nobody said a word, but we knew exactly what we were being called for. So we sat down and and the dean of the school said, well, I guess you guys know what you're here for. We played dumb and nobody spoke up. And he said, you folks are the ones that missed your first tuition payment. And he said, now, we want to believe God with you. But we found in our experience that the people that have trouble making the first month's tuition payment have trouble making tuition payments every month. So we're going to give you a week's time to come up with the whole amount I think there were five months left. It would have been $1,100, I think it was. $1,100. So in a week's time, a week from today, this was on a Friday, a week from today, um, you owe the school $1,100 or else you're going to have to be dismissed from school. Well, that might, have been a, might as well have been $11 million as far as I was concerned. So we all, you know, sucked it up, left school, went, went to our place the um uh, i went across the street and did what i needed to do to get ready for the rest of the afternoon didn't really think about it tried not to think about it i just kind of felt numb all afternoon saturday morning i woke up got in the shower and said all right i'm gonna have to do something about this so i had a talk with the lord so i said lord i know that you worked in a supernatural way to bring me out here to school you didn't bring me out here to leave me here for a month, and then, then what? I mean, I, I'm not making enough money to make it here. What am I going to do? Stay here in Tulsa. I don't like this place anyhow. only reason I'm here is for school. If I'm not in school, I don't want to stay here. So you didn't bring me out here to fail. So I'd heard Brother Hagin's teaching about claiming what you need and so forth. So I said, I claim $1,100 by, uh, they, they said they needed it in a week, but the next school day, after that week was up was a Monday, so really you had, uh, what would that have been, 12 days? Uh, no, it had been nine days, something like that, to get the money. And I, I owed it by the next Monday, Monday week. Uh, so I said, I claimed $1,100 by Monday week in the name of Jesus, and I thank you, Father, for making it so. Now, the first thought that came to me was, and I knew it was the devil, first thought that came to me was, 
Well, you better pray in tongues. Now, I didn't know the devil tempted you to pray in tongues. But the Bible says that God sees your heart. We know that you can pray in English in fear, can't you? If you can pray in English in fear, couldn't you pray in tongues in fear? Sure you could. Well, I picked up on that. And my first thought was, yeah, that's right. I better pray in tongues. And then immediately I realized, wait a minute, this is the devil. If God heard my prayer of faith just a moment ago, the words of faith that I just spoke, what is there to pray in tongues about? So I just said, no, Mr. Devil, I'm not going to pray in tongues one bit about this. Until this money comes in, I'm not going to pray in tongues about my situation one moment. So I just lifted my hands and started thanking God that it was done. Well, I've got nine days left, I guess. So the pressure's off. I'm feeling good. Next day, I didn't think about it too much. Sunday, didn't think about it. Went about my business. Monday, went over to to school. Now, the way they did school back in those days, it was a little bit different. They didn't have classes because they had a special seminar during that next week. And if it had not been for that special seminar, I would have owed the money on that Monday. But because they weren't having classes, they gave us that extra week to get the money in. So they had morning services open to the public, and then they had evening services that week open to the public. So I got up and went to the the morning service, and then I'm going to to healing school, prayer and healing school, just like I always do. Uh, Prayer school was a 1 o'clock service, and uh, Patsy Beerman, now Patsy Caminetti, was doing the prayer school then. And so she got in there, and she said, you know, she said, I just feel impressed that we need to just pray for, for our own needs today. I thought, dear God, that's the last thing I need to do. I need to stay in faith and just thank God for what I'm believing for and and stay out of fear about this thing. So she, you know, led us kind of in a general prayer, and then we all started praying in tongues. And I'd start praying in tongues, trying to pray for anything and everything else I could think of. And I'd catch my mind, start wandering over and starting to worry about my own situation. I'd catch myself and stop. No, no, no. She did that every day that week, every day during that week. I I know for a fact that it was just just... uh, a test for me to try to control my own thoughts and keep everything in line. But I made it, made it through into that um, uh, service on Friday was the end of that thing. Now I'm three days away. Money's due on Monday. What am I going to do? The thoughts have been coming all week, all week long. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I wouldn't pick them up. I wouldn't think about them. I wouldn't consider them. I said, no, I claimed $1,100. God's not big enough to do it. I'll have to go home, and I believe he's big enough. Friday afternoon, after healing school, it's probably um, Brother Hagin wasn't teaching healing school during that week, so the service didn't go so long. So it was probably, I don't know, 3.30 maybe, 3.30, 4 o'clock, something like that, Tulsa time, central time. I get a call, and it's my sister-in-law. And she said, Mike, do you remember that boat that your daddy used to have? Now, my dad was a big fisherman. My dad wasn't too good about providing for us kids. But, boy, he had guns. He had boats. He had fishing equipment. He had all the kind of stuff that, that it takes to, to be an outdoorsman. I mean, he was loaded up with that kind of stuff. Well, when my dad died, and he had died earlier that year, when my dad died, we didn't see any of that stuff. And, and there was a big fight over the wheel and all that kind of stuff. My brother and I got nothing. Um, so my sister says, you remember that bass boat 
that your daddy had. Well, yeah, man, that thing was tricked out. It was the top of the line, the best you could get. She said, well, his wife, uh, second wife, decided to sell that, and she's going to distribute the money between you and Scott. She's going to give you and Scott a share of that. Well, that was supernatural in and of itself. That's the only money I ever saw out of anything of my dad's. And she said, uh, I said, well, that's, that's great. How much is it? She said, it's $1,100. I said, well, man, that is wonderful. Praise God, that's wonderful. She said, I'm going to put it in the mail and send it to you. This is Friday afternoon. So I said, well, okay. Thanks, Phyllis. I appreciate it. So I hung up the phone, and I realized there's no way it can get from me from Birmingham, Alabama, not even yet in the mail at 3.30 and 4 o'clock in the afternoon to get to me on, by Monday morning. They're not going to take it Tuesday. They're not going to take it Monday at noon. If it's not there by Monday at 8 o'clock when classes start, I'm out. I know very well what they, how they operate and so forth. They, they were strong in faith, not so strong in grace. So I just said, well, okay, Lord, I guess that's an extra $1,100 then. Because if that doesn't get here, I need the money by, 11, by Monday morning at 8 o'clock. I claimed $1,100 by Monday morning at, 11, at 8 o'clock. So if this money doesn't get here, and I don't see any way that it can get here, then I guess I'm just going to have an extra $1,100. Thank you, Lord, that you're working out things down the road for me. I would not allow myself to think anything else. Well, Saturday, I go to the mailbox Saturday midday, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, something like that. I go to the mailbox, and that check is there for $1,100. Now, you figure it out for yourself. I don't have an answer. It wasn't special delivery. It wasn't overnight. I don't even know if they had overnight stuff back then. It was postmarked the day before on Friday, and now it's in my mailbox halfway across the country on Saturday afternoon. I don't know if God delivered that by carrier angel. I don't know what it was. All I know is I had the $1,100. I was the only one of the bunch that was called in that had the money by that Monday. Only one. Only one. Folks, I'm here to tell you, God is on your side. God is not withholding from you. Now, I'd like to be able to tell you that from that point, everything just the windows of heaven opened to me and everything came easy and, and finances were there. But I struggled all throughout that next year. And the, the way that I was expecting, I was working hard, doing everything I knew to do, but the way that I was expecting the money to come, it never came that way. I mean, it was supernatural how the money that, that I was scheduled to earn didn't work. Supernatural. And it was, looking back at it, I can only assume that it was God showing me, even though things don't look, work out the way that you thought they would, even though it didn't work out on paper, I'm taking care of you. Because he did. I'm here to tell you folks. The blessing of the Lord makes rich. The blessing of the Lord makes rich. The blessing of the Lord makes rich. Now the Jews claim that blessing for themselves. They've got a mindset. That whatever they put their hand to is going to work. Why don't you? They've got a mindset. That whatever business they go into. It's going to work. because there's And they don't even talk to God about it. They're not even praying about stuff. They just know that there is some unseen blessing that happened a long time ago that they were told by their families about 
that they really don't even have any personal knowledge of except that they've been exposed to it all their lives. I've never met a Jew that has any greater personal relationship with God than just it being a part of our family history. Never. I'm I'm not saying they're not those that are out there, but I can tell you this, it's not a prerequisite to them having success, business success, financial success. Because I've met a lot of folks that are that are blessed, a lot of folks that are that are wealthy, that are Jews, that it's just something that's a part of their family history. And they expect it to work every time, not part-time, every time. Well, the Bible says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, that the blessing of Abraham might come on us. You've got a greater blessing than they do. The question is, do you have the same mindset about it that they do? Because that's what makes the difference. If we could wrap our heads around, the blessing of the Lord is what makes us rich. That'd be the end of our money troubles. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you, Lord, that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Because of the work of Jesus on the cross, because Jesus has come into our hearts, recreated us by the Spirit of God, I thank you, Father, that the blessing of Abraham is ours. I thank you, Father, that everything we put our hand to prospers. Open the eyes of our understanding, Lord. Cause us to see that as we put spiritual things first, because we put spiritual things first, that success follows us on every hand. Because we seek first the kingdom of God, the things of the earth, material things and financial things of the earth are added to us. We don't have to struggle to make it work, Father. It works because we're blessed of God. Open our eyes to that reality, Lord, so that the church can have the finances that we need to reach the world. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.